Hello world, you're listening to the Kitchener-Waterloo-Linux user group audio podcast. KWLUG discusses topics related to free and open source software of all kinds. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, so you can give it to others, remix it, or even sell it, provided you abide by the terms of the license and share alike the works that you remix and redistribute. For more information about KWLUG, visit kwlug.org. For more information about this podcast, visit kwlug.org slash podcasts. In this month's presentation, John Steele demonstrates the LAN cache proxy, and Jason Eckert leads us through some Linux trivia. Then I'll just jump right into it. So I wanted to talk about LAN cache today, which is their slogan is uh, LAN party game caching made easy. And uh, before we go straight to LAN cache, I wanted to briefly go over what a web cache is. So that's something that sits between you and your files or the files you're looking to get access to. It keeps a copy for a period of time, usually faster than going direct. And uh, with static websites, it can even hide outages. So they're fairly popular. And let's look at what downloading games on a popular platform such as Steam is. By the way, is this, uh, is this full screen or it looks really small on mine? Looking good. Okay, cool. So, Steam, for example, you have your Steam client, you go to download a game, and then Steam returns you a bunch of game file chunks uh, back to your client. And it all actually happens over HTTP for the most part, um, just because they're using CDNs. And there's a signature and uh, checksums over the files. So, there's I guess only a privacy concern over HTTP, there's not a security concern. Anyone in the middle can see what you're doing, but we can take advantage of this. So because this all happens on HTTP, we can stick a proxy in the middle. This was what that might look like. We have a proxy in the middle and you get a request for a game file. We can have our proxy just say, hey, do I have this game? And if not, then the proxy will just proxy your request over to Steam. Steam will give you the game file in the chunks that we did before, and we just pass those along to the client as they request them. And then the following requests that come in, when I when you do have the game, we skip this section block where we go to Steam, and we can serve the file right from your own LAN. So if you're at a larger venue where you, have, you may have a good connection, but maybe it doesn't scale well to you know a few hundred people, this... Uh, so let's you put that uh, load onto a local server. Then, uh, so let's see how we can accomplish this. So someone's already done the hard work. That's the the land cache team, and they've taken advantage of a couple popular open source projects in order to achieve this. So they are using Bind and Nginx. If you haven't heard of it, Bind is a DNS server. The land that uh, land cache uses to intercept queries for the game content. Uh, it checks the, the DNS query against a list of addresses that it has hard-coded, or not hard-coded, that can be configured. Uh, and then it instead of serving the server like Steam or uh, Nintendo or Xbox or Windows updates, it'll just serve your local. It makes a CNAME to your local server, uh, which I can demo in a moment. Um, and then that server is able to, uh, so then 
after DNS is complete, then your actual Steam client will connect uh, to Nginx. And Nginx is actually going to be doing working as the reverse proxy to whatever uh, service you need. And then there's also some other helpful scripts that I might uh, dip into. There's this domain list that's hosted by UK lands. And then there's some priming tools that can automatically uh, fill up this cache for you instead of just waiting for people to do it. So on Reddit, when I was doing some research on this, someone was looking for help uh, preloading a game. Um, they had bought their daughter and they wanted them to be able to play like right away on Christmas day and didn't want to have to worry about uh, network issues. All right, so I'm gonna try to share. I guess I have one more slide that just says demo. So let's see if I can share a terminal here. Or let's start with uh, DuckDuckGo and let's just search for land cache. And they have a really simple page where you, they give you four steps to get up and running. We're just gonna grab this first step. I clone the land cache repo into and cache and they are going to use nano we're going to use vim <laughs> no then nano is not a viable editor um dot env we're going to cu uh, customize a few things we're going to bind we're going to tell it what our uh, host ip is i want to get back out to bash for a second yeah um, ifconfig en0, and my IP actually happens to end with a 53. Now I can replace these two IPs. So there's one IP that's the land cache IP and the bind IP doesn't have to be the same server, but in our case it is. And then upstream DNS, I'll just leave this with, uh, I think that's a Google DNS server. And I'm going to turn down the amount that'll cache, so that's about two gigs. That have, uh, so what it'll do is cache up to whatever you set and then start overwriting the oldest uh, files. All I need for now, close, check. So yeah, up, they're gonna use dash D, we'll do the same. That just forces it into the background. Okay, that's up, we can have a look at the logs you see it's starting up and it's reading a lot of different domains that it's going to be intercepting all right all set so let's switch over to my other terminal here and we have an access log so here i've uh, moved into the land cache uh, directory inside land cache this is where they have all their um, cache files as well as logs so we see here just like most nginx you have these access logs and error logs so I'm just gonna tail and follow our access log to see what's happening. And over here, let's just do a test. Just going to look at a, one of the Windows Update servers where I can do the Toronto Tech Savvy Steam server. These are both internet IPs right now. I want to actually set my DNS to use that. So let me see if I can get my phone in front of the camera. So is that visible? Yeah, we can see that. Okay. So I'm just going to go to set a custom DNS server. I'm 53. Save. 
helps you to configure it on an app. There's no web interface. Uh, yes, it is ZSH, and I'm using a custom theme that I think I based off Ruby Russell or Robbie Russell. Um, but I put in the date because I like having the date of when I ran commands, and uh, that's all I really changed. I think I also maybe didn't have. Um, I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but I think I did something where I uh, don't have a full path because it always annoyed me when I'm in deep folders. So I did something in the theme so it only gave me like two levels. Okay, that should give us enough time to see a change in DNS. Look again. No, nope, not quite yet. Maybe we'll take a shortcut and just go to, just force our query to go to this machine. Make sure that's working. I think the bottom of your terminal is getting cut off. Ah, thank you. Uh, yes, so it you is. Might I resized want it. To just clear it. Just going to move it a little bit. Is that... That's looking okay, yeah. And let me just check my other terminal. I may have resized that as well. This one here, I think this one is... I think that one's okay. All right, so waiting for DNS to update. It hasn't updated. Let's do a little bit of troubleshooting. Docker, PS. But I can see that... DNS and the monolith have been running for three minutes. I can see that DNS has bound port 53. Big is saying that my machine is responding. Oh, actually, uh, let's switch over to this terminal. I am already seeing some Valve traffic, so some Steam client is talking to me. Uh, but I should be able to demonstrate that with Dig. Okay, maybe the other one is still, I don't know why this one isn't being redirected, but uh, this Windows Update Server is showing um, Windows Server Update Service .net, and it's showing my IP address. It says you're using server.1, no? Uh, server.1. Oh, yeah, so, yes. Um, so that's what I updated on my phone, so I should be using... Like if I use .1, uh, the Google Wi-Fi, it should be uh, uh, directing my machine to this, uh, to my local server. Um, and I forced it with this. It doesn't say .1. So now it says I'm going direct. Um, but it just seems like this uh, this cache from Tech Savvy is not on the list, maybe. I thought I tested that it was. But uh, when I look at this Windows Update Server, it is... Uh, and I already see that I'm getting uh, hits on this this window. So I'm going to demonstrate installing a game now, which here. Hopefully that's visible. Not, I can make it a little bit bigger. Maybe I will just make it a bit bigger. Wash cache. Ah, uh, I don't. Yeah, when I'm using dig, I don't think there is a cache. So I think it was just that um, that one Steam server may not have been on the list. I'm not 100% sure. Right, so let me go ahead and install a short hike. And you'll see this is moving a little bit faster as it's actually getting all these chunks of the game. Resolve control flash cache tab completion help with the command. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the dot one could have had a cache. Although I, I found it pretty quick to switch in the past. But didn't uh, 
demo, of course, it's not going to work that way. All right, so if we have a look at the team deck, we can see it's finished. And uh, I didn't really explain what's happening with the terminal here. All of these are cache misses. So this is the first time I've downloaded this game. So it wasn't in the cache. Uh, so it's, it's showing all these misses. So it's, it's seamlessly uh, getting that out from the internet. Now what I can do is use NCDU see how much has been used. So now I can see that my cache has, I don't know how this shows up, but there's uh, almost a gigabyte in this cache folder now. Look into it, it's all kind of split up by hashes. All these chunks are kind of divvied up in one meg pieces. So we'll go back, we're going to remove and install it a second time. And with any luck, it's not gonna need the internet. Now all these chunks are saying hit. So as the second person downloading this game through this server, um, everything is just being downloaded locally. So uh, my friends and I just recently had a LAN party for the first time in, I don't know, like I don't know, 15 years or something. And uh, we had used this and it was really excellent. We could just decide on games um, while we're there and we could all download them fairly quickly. What was the command I used to show disk usage? That is an awesome command. I'm uh, NCDU, so net, uh, N curses disk usage. I used to use a Python version, but they the, it was using Python 2, um, and I couldn't find a good uh, fork that used a modern Python. Is that LTT used for their LAN party? Yes, that's where I first heard of it. Linus Tech Tips did a video uh, talking about uh, and, oh, actually, no, I think maybe a friend. I don't know where I first heard of it. I definitely saw it land that uh, video, and that was uh, that was pretty interesting. Uh, they yeah, they had hundreds of people in one of their uh, one of their buildings in Vancouver. All right, so we've installed this twice. Uh, the first time um, went through the internet, and the second time all went through this cache. So I think that's pretty cool on its own. But I also thought it would be interesting to show how we could. Um, make this a bit more Linux focused and let's adapt this to cache a Debian uh, back to this terminal. Or actually, is there any questions before I go ahead? Or just uh, shoot any questions as you think of them and I'll get to them as soon as I see them. So I've already cloned, did I? Maybe I didn't. Oh no, yeah, there it is, cache domains. So UK lands. Uh, maintains this list of all kinds of uh, uh, CDNs for different games and different uh, game stores. So I can see Epic Games, Frontier, Nintendo. And if you look at any of these files, it's just a list of uh, domains that we can capture. So I've gone ahead, created my own called apps.txt, and it's just going to capture anything at debian.org. And then there's a one more file to change. They have this JSON file. Have JQ? I do. Okay. So this cache domains JSON file uh, just gives a description, a name for each of the repos. So I gave apt mirror for apt repos, and I gave it my text file. I guess in theory you can give it multiple text files, but it looks like everyone's just using one. All right. I guess you could have maybe one text file that's shared between multiple. All right, so I've done this. I'm going to go back 
the land cache folder. Take a peek at my browser and to see what they how they document to use your own cache. They say to set the cache domains repo and the cache domains branch. So we're going to go and edit our end file again. Actually, we want to edit our Docker Compose because we need to set this twice. So on the DNS, means branch. So here's my Git repo. Okay, my branch is kwlug. And I'll just copy this to monolithic as well, which I think also, I'm not sure why it needs it. I guess, oh yeah, I guess it would need to know where to go upstream. So the uh, DNS container is just going to point everything to it. But once it gets a request, it needs this uh, it needs this information so it knows how to get to the upstream server, I think. Now that we've edited the Docker Compose, okay, I saved. Um, Docker Compose, we can do PS to see the status. That's not useful Compose. We see it's been up for a while. We're going to say up again. And it's going to see that the, the configuration has changed. And it'll redeploy each of these containers. Have a look at the logs. And while it's booting up, I think it gives us a hint that we have. Yep. So now we can see bootstrapping monolithic with uh, my uh, cache domains and my branch. DNS should have the same information. Bootstrapping land cache from Blackthorn Nugent cache domains and kwlug. All right. That's almost done. To my Debian window. Yep. So from here, apt update. Oh, I guess, yeah, sudo. So if I switch back to this terminal, I should see something happening. So I see some cache misses from Debian distributions buster updates. Try to actually install something. So do I already have NeoFetch? I do. Um, What's a not so big package I can install? Someone's favorite tool? Hollywood, NCD. <laughs> uh, sudo apt install Hollywood. Haven't heard of this. Trusts the app store. Looks like it's only 12 megs. Oh, PV is a good one. Yeah, speaking of useful tools, that's awesome. Dapet, haven't heard of that either. All right, so now. If I look back to the cache log, I can see got more utils. So all the dependencies for that, as well as the package itself, have all been downloaded. And all of these are showing as misses. So we're going to go back to Debian and sudo apt remove. And then uh, I should have timed it the first time. So maybe I'll try another one. So if you stick time in front, see how we do. Installed Hollywood in 1.7 seconds, which is absolutely faster than we did before. But let's do uh, let's do another one. So the second one, ncdu, uh, sudo apt install ncdu. <laughs> All right, six seconds the first time. One second delete, and the second time, installed in a second. Run Hollywood. <laughs> Nice. I saw uh, Beamon. Is it actually running these things? Yeah, okay, it's running file, Beamon, 
um, some kind of tree. I don't know what that uh, speedometer thing is. That's awesome. <laughs> Doesn't matter if what the general purpose. <laughs> nice. I wonder how much, how many times it's actually been used um, for uh, background machines and diehard for it. Nice. Awesome. So this is, um, I think this is pretty useful. We didn't have to do any configuration on Debian. Uh, let's see the DNS for the Debian repo. Yeah. So let's do a dig. Do I have dig? I do. Dig deb debian.org. You can see that our uh, when we look up Debian, we're getting the C name for apt cache land cache, which goes to my machine. And one more cool thing. So yeah, I wanted to yeah highlight that this needed no configuration on this machine. So just like a LAN party, you don't want to have to get everyone configured. You can just plop this down onto any network as long as you can uh, forward DNS requests. Um, in some networks, you may not want to send all DNS requests to this directly. Um, the UK LANs website has more information on how you can uh, customize a, um, a pie hole or a certain routers uh, to still act as your first line DNS, but forward um, the necessary uh, servers for games and whatnot over to uh, this. Or maybe they can actually just serve the uh, fulfill the role of the DNS server itself if you have all the records. Uh, I haven't dug, dug too much into that yet. Have one last demo um, show how this can be used. So I'm going to come back to this blue terminal over here. Oh no, I want blue terminal to stay on logs. Come to the yellow terminal. And I want to docker run just to simulate what it might uh, take to install uh, NeoFetch on a fresh Docker image. So you can see I'm using, uh, I'm gonna use Docker to run Debian stable slim, and I'm going to just apt update, apt install NeoFetch and run NeoFetch. Running, uh, I'm using ZSH time to see how long the whole thing takes. Go. Debian looks like it got NeoFetch. I just double check. I don't think we installed NeoFetch yet, right? That should have been a cache miss. Bottom. Yeah, I think this is all cache misses. Yeah. <laughs> all right, NeoFetch ran in 29 seconds. Uh, but let's say I'm making a change to a build and now I need to build again. I've got a bunch of different, and I want to start from scratch. So back again, doing an apt update, apt install. This time, we take a peek at the blue window. We're seeing a lot of cache hits. Okay, same thing in 13 seconds. So any um, developers that are making a lot of changes to Docker files and they want to always start from scratch, uh, this can save you a lot of time. I wish I knew about this earlier because I'm definitely going to start using this at work to, uh, to speed up my builds. And I haven't tried it, but I can imagine you could also use this as a local proxy for um, Maven and a lot of other repos, as long as you can uh, use them with HTTP. This only works, uh, so Paul asked, uh, this only works for plain HTTP. Uh, it does not work for HTTPS. I guess not because of the certificates. That's right. Uh, they, it was intentionally left out of scope as far as I can tell for LAN cache. They didn't want uh, to have to <laughs> convince people at a LAN party to install a, a custom root certificate. Um, but it also just happened to be a happy accident that, that a lot of CDNs for gaming services 
are already using HTTP. Um, Valve being the huge one. Um, all the chunks just come through HTTP. Yeah, I, I wonder, I guess what they could do, um, they could detect that you do have land cache. I don't know if any of them are actually aware of it, but if uh, if something like Valve ever did want to do HTTPS, they could still do a, re, a, um, a resolve. And to, if they see that the that Steam's servers are resolving to a local network, they could choose to make the connection over HTTP in that case. Um, that way, in the normal case where you are going through the internet, um, you're not, you know, revealing to anyone in the middle everything you're downloading. Steam, which you may want to be private. <laughs> uh, Linux people run anything that ends in fetch. Yep, checks out. <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, so the way I did it, I'm using just star.debian. So security.debian.org will be the same thing. I could do awlug.debian.org, and it's also just going to resolve to the same thing. <laughs> nope. <laughs> All right, any other questions? When everybody is finished with land crash questions, I have a non-land cache related question. Sure. I'll, I'll prep just in case, but you feel free to answer other questions in between. Um, your uh, presentation setup is very nice, and I am wondering if you could briefly take us through it, because you have like at least two cameras, I want to say. Sure, yeah. So uh, I think... Um... Jason had done a demo on OBS a few months ago, and uh, I've been playing with it a little bit since then. Um, and I'm using uh, two cameras. I'm using uh, my just the webcam on my laptop, and then um, I wonder if I can share it. I'm using the continuity camera from. Uh, I wonder if I can just kind of turn my camera here to maybe I'll make a new window. You can see the window projector window. Oh, hey, there you are. <laughs> All right, and turn off background blur. So I just have this guy here. Just using my phone as my second camera. I, it had been working wirelessly, um, but just before the uh, call, I noticed it wouldn't connect, so I have it wired to my machine right now. Desk cam. And in, I guess, yeah, Apple has this, like, continuity desk thing, so it tries to, like, flatten out so that it looks... Even though it's looking at an angle, it's kind of flattening it out, so you're looking straight down. It's kind of interesting. This is like the second time I've tried it, but it seems to do a good job. Yeah, you're right. I don't know if I would have noticed it if you hadn't mentioned it, but it does look slightly weird as you move around. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. I, I may bother you with questions about you and uh, you and Jason with questions about OBS in the future. Uh, um, Related to our the d discussion at the beginning about eventually getting back in person, um, I have been very lazily starting to try to think about what our uh, streaming system would be like, hmm. and the possibility of having. Um, I know some people have talked about so the same as you were doing is wanting to you know, what if I have stuff on a device I want to uh, show at the same time I'm demoing, or I have a piece of hardware I want to show off, and it'd be pretty cool to have a um, probably similar to what you're doing, like just a hey, you want to do it? We can do it. This is this is we got this piece, we got this piece. You just you need to do this, we'll do this, and we can make it work. Yeah, that'd be awesome. 
I'd like to find an. I'd like to see if I can get this working without having to use the uh, Apple device. I definitely had a camera before, but I, I kind of do like the the warping. I wonder if there's open source uh, software that could do a similar effect. And yeah, I have. I've made yeah. a few different. So, uh, so many views. people use OBS. It seems like there must be a, must be an OBS plugin for doing that. Could be. I noticed there's like um, if you want to have someone like remote. Um, or, or yeah, if you want to have someone like remote change your scenes and stuff, it looks like there's a, a WebSocket um, interface, so you could develop your own like dashboard to kind of be a remote producer. If you wanted, to, I guess people people have already done that, but uh, be fun just to experiment with. Um, Bob says, so you're sending the output of OBS. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm sending uh, OBS. I have a windowed projector, uh, and then I'm sharing that. Um, Paul and I experimented with uh, um, sending it to Twitch, and then uh, Big Blue Button can actually grab the Twitch stream, the, the Twitch stream back in, uh, and then you wouldn't have this like windowed projector title. Um, but then I have to deal with like a 15 second delay. OBS is huge in uh, right now in the education world among teachers. <laughs> yes, Bob is a good point. Thanks, John. <laughs> I probably spent more time, uh, yeah, trying to set up my uh, scenes and stuff than I did on my slides, but <laughs> hopefully it was worth it. All, all, all I'm hearing is you were spending time developing yet another presentation to give to us. So, <laughs> but it's cool. I, I learned. Uh, I think I played with this before, and I was annoyed at how long I spent on um, like setting all this up, and then like I'd end up losing it later. Uh, but I can export. I don't know why I never noticed that before, but you can uh, have a scene collection, you export it all to JSON, and import it later. That, that all by itself is probably a worthwhile thing to know, even if nothing else. <laughs> uh, Paul says, by windowed projector, John means it, it puts it in the stuff. And, yeah, so I'm just putting everything into this this output, and then I'm just, this is the only window that I'd share to Big Blue Button, so that when I choose different scenes, that's all you see. Um, yeah, there's also uh, something I found. It didn't work for ev for everything. Um, there's an automatic scene switcher where you can say if a certain window gets focused, automatically select a specific scene. So just by opening my Debian VM, it switches to Debian, or I think Firefox switches to Firefox. Uh, but I couldn't get it to distinguish between different terminals, so I had to set I had to manually go and click for the terminals. Oh, I missed a question from Ron about my prompt. Is there a special font uh, for the prompt uh, to get the which character? You get the dollar? Date to dollar. So I think I'm using Powerline. But I think some of these, like, I think these characters here um, are kind of weird in some fonts. So I think I played around with a bunch of different fonts until these lined up nicely. Oops. Um, I don't know if my selection is showing it. Oh, I'm not even sharing. Oh, no, I'm sharing my whole screen, right? Um, the characters to the left of my shell look weird in some fonts, I guess. And the date down a line. Yeah, that line, I did have problems on some fonts. Have a KW Lug Bira. So themes, KW Lug. So this is, uh, I'm not sure if this is big enough. This is my KW Lug theme. Um, and I'm just literally new lines. Have the date. I think there's a smarter way to put the date. 
Oh no, no, this might be right. I might have fixed it already. I think I used to do something where I actually like called the date command. Yeah, these characters they they do show up in a lot of fonts, but sometimes they don't line up nicely or they have gaps between them. <laughs> so right now my font is SF mono regular. Thought I used Powerline before. Maybe I haven't done it on this machine. No other questions, then I'll uh, yield my time. <laughs> and maybe we'll go into trivia. Or did someone else have a uh, 270 fonts? So ner what, nerd fonts? Oh, cool. Thanks. Yeah, so this is just basically something we did in case we needed filler. Kind of like a fun thing. I don't know if anyone's played Kahoot before. Um, there's no really good or well-implemented open source version of Kahoot. Um, trust me, I've checked. And there's a German one that sucks. Um, really bad to implement. But um, this is kind of like the next best thing. It's basically a PDF with that looks like Kahoot. And if I go to the next slide there, I don't know if you guys can see this, but can everyone see sample question text? Yep. Okay, cool. So Kahoot has these like four answers and you're supposed to, you know, use an app on your phone or your PC and, and click an answer and within a short period of time. So the, the sooner you do it, the more points you get and then it gets tallied up at the end. So you have to know the answer and even though you can Google it, I mean, the faster you can do it, you know, the better, right? So to keep momentum, we'll kind of go through some of this trivia like nice as fast as we possibly can. So you don't have to get perfect. You don't have to Google everything, but you know, just see if you got it off the top of your head and see if you're right. So with big blue button, um, I guess we could do a poll for each one, but that would be, that would slow things down. So I'm thinking maybe we could just use the public chat and people could just like put their answers in there and we can kind of see like most people think it's, you know, the blue one or the red one or the yellow one or the green one. Um, or you could just answer the right, question you know and just have like the red blue yellow and green as the you know the differentiator visually right because a lot of these things are kind of short but uh who wants to start you guys want to start doing some cool linux trivia that just stuck together for fun oh, a bunch of people are typing there let's go okay all right okay so get ready guys <laughs> tim's already read there we go yeah, the red answer is the correct one for this one. So Tim got it right the first time like that. So five points to Tim. So first question. Which commands use to change file permissions, guys? Chamad, Chamad, everyone says red. Yeah, you're right. It's absolutely Chamad. Damn, damn. Tim is good. He was right. <laughs> Tim's got yellow. There we go. That's good. Um, well, I guess you could, you know, you're indirectly changing file permissions by changing the owner, right? By changing what it maps do. Here's another one. Let's check this one out. First Hollywood blockbuster that was developed entirely on Linux using FOSS software. 100% FOSS. Which one was it, guys? First Hollywood blockbuster. Entirely FOSS. Shrek. Blue. Pirates. Paul says Shrek. John says red. Tim says yellow. The answer is red. It was Titanic in 1997, guys. Yeah, 1997, the first FOSS movie before Linux hit the mainstream, entirely developed on DEC alphas running SUSE Linux. I know because Compaq gave me those afterwards, part of an academic edu lease. Yeah. And all this stuff is easy to Google. All right, first non x86. Was that actually using FOSS software or just FOSS operating systems? 
Oh, including all custom developed floss software. Absolutely. It was deck. Yeah. It was definitely, uh, the deck alpha guys. If you read the early notes on Linux, it was the first port of Linux was to the deck alpha. It was very, very early on, early 1990s. Um, and it worked beautifully according to Linus. It was amazing. Yeah, so everyone thinks it's MIPS. Yeah, and some Spark, right? Spark would make more sense, but Spark was right after Alpha, and MIPS was right after Spark. Yeah, and ARM wasn't until much later on. Yeah, it was definitely the deck Alpha. All right, which command would not take you to your home directory? Easy one, guys. There you go. Bob's got it. Yeah, Paul Green. Awesome. Look <laughs> all this stuff. Super easy. Tilde obviously means your home directory or tilde username if you are actually called username. There we go. There we go. Oldest Linux distribution. Everyone should know this one, I think. What's the oldest distro? Everyone's got red. I see red. Slackware. Yes. Slackware is the oldest. Yes. Some people use it, but they're slackers. All right. Size of the first Linux kernel. How big was the first Linux kernel? Anyone know? I know the answer to this one. People say blue, uh, 65K or 402K blue. So we got a lot of blues and a couple of yellows. And the answer actually is yellow. It was only 65 kilobytes in size, the first Linux kernel. 402 was way too large back then. Yeah, it's like, wow. Remember, we're talking like early 90s, guys, right? So 65 kilobytes, that was a lot, you know? All right. Uh, when will this cron job run? Who knows when that'll run? Got to have a cron. Trivia is somewhere, right? 4.12 a.m. Bob's got it every day. There we go. It's all yellow. It's all yellow. <laughs> or M1 blue. There we go. Got to have a blue in there. Yeah. It's it's definitely a minute past the hour. So 12 minutes past the hour. Fourth hour. And it's a 24-hour clock. Every day of the month. Every month of the year. Every day of the week. Monday to Friday. Saturday, Sunday, right? Those are the five fields. Or you can go to crontab.guru. If you if you type in crontab.guru, that website, uh, it's basically a cheat sheet for people learning cron. All right. The name Linus Torvalds originally wanted to use for Linux, guys. Yeah, I, I use systemd timers myself, Jeff. I mean, I love, I, I cron's kind of old. But we still use it in Kubernetes. There we go. Yellow, red, green, blue. Oh, everyone's all over the place. Yeah, magenta. Okay. Actually, the, the right answer, I'm surprised nobody knew this. The right answer was uh, FreeX, which stood for Free Unix. That's what Linus Torvalds wanted to call Linux. He wanted to call it FreeX. Yeah, Free free Unix is what it was, right? So that was what Linus wanted uh, for Linux. It, he never got his way, obviously, but yeah, <laughs> freaks. We'd be, we'd be freaks, guys. There we go. <laughs> there we go. All right, percentage of the top 500 supercomputer list that runs Linux. Should be an easy one, guys. Green, green, 100%. It's absolutely 100%. Has been 100% since uh, 2015. Sorry, 2016. Since 2016, it has been 100%. Before 2016, it was like 99 or 98 or whatever. It's been pretty heavy on Linux, guys. Yeah. And so, but it's been 100% for, it'll probably be close to a decade soon that it'll be 100%. All right, first Ontario Linux Fest. Who went to the first Ontario Linux Fest from here? I know I saw some of you here, so no liars. Yeah, it was red. Yeah. Do you guys remember what uh, uh, laptop was demoed at the first Ontario Linux Fest? There was a small laptop machine on one of the, the things. Who remembers? What was that first laptop? 
Yeah, <laughs> it was the um, um, uh, one uh, OLPC, the one laptop per child. You guys remember that OLPC, that little Tonka toy looking green and white thing? Yeah. And then they had like uh, who talked? I think someone gave a talk there too. It was uh, um, John Mad Dog Hall. Yeah, there we go. All right, guys. So that was definitely uh, 2007, October 13th. There we go. I don't know whatever happened to it, but it was really cool. I, remember, I miss it, actually. Yeah. I think they only did two of them. Command that determines the file type, guys. Another one that turns the file type. Yeah, it's the file command. Yep, everyone's got it. They're green. Yep, super easy. Oh, if you were using an old Unix system, though, it was FSTYP, if you guys remember from System 5 Unix. But on Linux, it's the file command. There we go. And number of lines of code in the Linux kernel by 2020. How many lines of code were in the Linux kernel by 2020? Ooh, we got red, we got blue, a couple blues, one yellow, one green. The right answer is red. It was 27 million lines of code by 2020, and it is a lot bigger than that now. <laughs> they added a lot since 2020, believe it or not. Um, yeah, so 27 million lines of code. And that's after taking some legacy stuff out too, right? So that's a lot of code. All right, Steve Ballmer from Microsoft accused Linux of being a what? Tim's got blue, Ralph's got blue. It's a cancer. Yeah, he called it a cancer. <laughs> open source spread like a cancer. Well, he wasn't wrong. I mean, oh, that's the nature of open source. It spreads. I mean, like, that's the intention of it, right? We want to reuse code. Okay, there we go. It's a cancer. And uh, great Canadian Linux certification or the Canadian Linux certification organization, guys. There's one of these that is Canadian. Yeah, it's the blue one. Yeah, Andrew's got it. El Linux Professional Institute. They're formally kind of registered to like the Toronto area. I think that's where Evan Leiptovich is, but, um, or wherever his address is. But I think there was a town kind of east of Toronto between here and Kingston that they were kind of headquartered for a while. But now I think they're just a generic Toronto address. But they're definitely Canadian. Always have been since the beginning. All right. Um Next, Linux desktop market share in 2021, excluding server, cloud, Internet of Things, mobile, or Chromebooks. Okay, so nothing. So this is the actual Linux on the desktop market share. Bob's got green. Cranky's got green. Yeah, it's like 2.4%. That's without Chromebooks and without mobile or IoT or anything. So that's the actual Linux on the desktop market share. And I bet you most of those are developers, guys. That's why everyone's got a developer-themed uh, laptop now, like the Dell XPS Developer Edition. The th whole ThinkPad line comes with Fedora if you want it. And, um, you know, HP Dev 1 and all that kind of stuff, right? Developers are really pushing that desktop market share. If you actually ask the new Bing AI whether what's going to happen first, whether it's going to be the year the Linux desktop is going to happen first or IP version six adoption, you'll probably take down all of Azure. All right, guys, next one. There we go. That's worldwide, actually, for Tim. There you go. <laughs> all right, so let's go to the next one there, guys. Uh, Linux is a popular brand of what in Switzerland? You can Google this even. It's, if you buy Linux, it's a popular brand of what? Yellow, yellow, yes, it is laundry detergent. Yes, the Linux laundry detergent. You might have seen that in a meme somewhere. Yeah, Linux laundry detergent. Very, very common. Yeah. It'd be, it, well, I would buy the jam for sure if it was a popular thing there. People would ask you, hey, what are you having for breakfast? Just some Linux. There we go. 
while I look out of, out of the windows. There we go. All right. Date that Linus Torvalds announced his free operating system later called Linux. I pronounced it Linux. Just be like Richard Stallman there. It was, yes, the 25th of August, 1991. The Greens win. Yeah, we got a couple. I got blue in there. 2000? Come on. You're not that young. <laughs> there we go. Yellow, 99. That's pretty close. 92. But it was actually 25th of August, 1991. And every year on the 25th of August which isn't too far from my birthday, I always see the social media lighting up with, hey, this is when Linux was announced. And they even have the the actual post, right? <laughs> there we go. And shows file attributes. How do you see file attributes in Linux, guys? Nice, easy tech question there. Yeah, there we got two blues there. The blues definitely are winning. Three is a charm. It's L-S-A-T-T-R. You can also use C-H-A-T-T-R to change attributes. And the only useful attribute ever made in Linux is the immutable one. Everything else sucks. All right. Approximate number of active Linux distros at any one time, according to DistroWatch. Yes. Got two blues and a green and a, another blue and a yellow. Yellow. Ooh, it's all over the place. Got a blue there. I think the blues are winning. Yeah, the blues are definitely winning by average. And blue is correct. At any one time, there are approximately 250 active Linux distributions that have not fallen into non-maintenance. That's a lot of Linux distributions, right? Right? So it's not just the main ones that we typically use, right? Like Fedora and Ubuntu and Arch and all that kind of stuff. All right. Release date of Red Hat Linux. Who remembers when Red Hat was released? It was on a special holiday. Remember that holiday? Red, Christmas, Blue, Independence Day? Nobody remembers? I remember. You can Google this one, too. It's a lot of fun. Yellow, Halloween. Got two yellows, two blues. So they're tied for Independence Day and Halloween. I guess being U.S., Independence Day would make sense, right? But the actual answer is Halloween. It was released on Halloween, October 31st, 1994. And every year, uh, Red Hat publishes some kind of Halloween artwork to commemorate the, their anniversary of Red Hat Linux, right? So you'll see that on social media. All right. Displays current IP tables rules. Yeah, everyone's got yellow. It's IP table. <laughs> I guess that's an old command, guys. We all use NF tables now, right? I said that's the new cool way all the cool kids are using, right? Everyone uses NF tables. They are much cooler. I'm still an old school IP tables person, though. But I got to make the switch eventually. I guess I could present on it, Paul, because I've switched already. But when you need it. All right. Outside of Linux, Linus Torvalds is most famous for creating what? Everyone should know this one. Yeah, Git. I mean, you ask any academic today in computer science, the two technologies that have dramatically transformed computer science in the last two decades, and they will say there's Linux and Git. <laughs> and they're not wrong. They're not wrong. Yes. I mean, like, holy moly. How can you, like, have two winners in your entire lifetime? I don't know. Um, but System D is also awesome. I know there's some people that don't like it, but I think I bow down to our System D overlords. All right. Percentage of Linux contributions that come from large enterprises like Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, Red Hat, Google, Samsung, SUSE, Meta, and Microsoft. Is it? Yeah. You might be shocked on this one. We got a lot of greens. We got a couple of yellows. Actually, we got more yellows than greens, I think, now. And you are correct. Over 
of all contributions to the Linux source code, the, the Linux kernel, actually come not from small organizations. They came from people working for these large enterprises, right? They've got skin in the game. Linux runs the world, guys. So that's where the big boys are entering in. So, yeah. But Linus still controls all the <laughs> development, and it is definitely not uh, ever going to fall into evil hands, right? So <laughs> there we go. All right. Configures the methods of name resolution used. The methods. We got blue for, yeah, you guys are good. Yeah, it's like EtsyResolve.com. That would be like if you're using DNS to resolve names, you can have them in there, right? And that usually is a pointer now to systemd, resolve d, right? But EtsyNSSwitch.conf. That's an often overlooked file. There's a line in there that says, you know, for anything, it's not just for hosts. Do you want to use, you know, MDNS first, then DNS, then look at the host file, like the order of name resolution? Do you want to use NIS if that's still around? You can still use that for name resolution. The order of name resolution methods, including DNS and the local host file, are in EtsyNSSwitch.conf. Yeah. And it's still active, right? Yeah. I don't know if anyone uses NIS. I remember when I worked for Sun Microsystems, it was called Yellow Pages, and then they got sued. Uh, but in defiance, they just had to name the, the the product, you know, NIS. They still kept all the config files, YP something. <laughs> there we go. All right. All right. First version of the Linux kernel that used the GNU general public license. Yes. Which version used the, the GNU general public license? Yeah, the first version did not use it. Is it blue? Is it red? And we got a, we got one red. We got uh, we got yellow in there. So it's not the 001 version. It was after that. In fact, Linux was first released under a license that prohibited commercial use, but it wasn't a formal license. It was just like something that was put slapped together. Uh, it didn't use the GPL right out of the gates. So... The first one that was GPL was actually red. So 0.12. There we go. And in 2001, Linux became the first operating system to support what? We got a red there from Bob and, and green, 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 IP version 6. And we got another red. So is it x86-64 or IP version 6 in 2001? That's a tough one. It's either red or green, I think. The actual answer is red. It was the first operating system to support AMD 64, which is formally called x86-64, right? So yeah, it's the first one to support the 64-bit Intel architecture. Yeah, the Intel SA, right? <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Now, Windows was very late. Yeah, poor Itanium. Itanium was a good idea that was executed horribly at, right out of the gates. All right, expands to the exit status of the most expands to the exit status of the most recently executed foreground process. Which variable would I echo if I want to see that? Yeah, dollar sign question mark. You guys are good. You know, got to break it up with a technical question there. Yeah, echo dollar sign question mark gives you the the exit status of the last command you ran. Unless your last command was a typo, <laughs> it's going to be either zero for good or something else for bad. All right. Linux Foundation pays Linus Torvalds how much money each year for his contributions to Linux? Yes, Linus Torvalds gets a salary from the, the, the Linux Foundation. How much does he get paid per year? Andrew says red, Tim says blue. Yellow, 500 bucks. 
Oh, I would buy like not very much nowadays. Uh, green, 20,000. The answer is it's all over the place, guys. The answer is red. He gets paid one and a half million dollars every year from the Linux Foundation. That's not a bad salary for his contributions in directing the Linux kernel. Yeah, and I, I think he deserves it. I love his rants. I mean, it's like best entertainment ever. There we go. Nobody can be upset about that. He's a cool guy. I especially love how uh, he, um, when he got invited to give an award from Intel, he even slammed Intel during the award. I mean, that's, I mean, come on. That's awesome. Right. All right. Release date of the version one of the Linux kernel. Who remembers when version one was released, guys? was version 1.0 released got a bunch of reds and you guys are absolutely correct yep that's an easy one and it's language used to write most of the linux kernel what was the language used to write most linux kernel guys yes god's language c there we go yes everything is it's actually most of it's still in c but i think you know eventually things will be rust right more and more rust but green would not be completely out of, would be not completely incorrect. I mean, I'm sure a lot of that has been written in profanity as well, right? There we go. <laughs> there we go. All right. Tux was named after what in 1996? What was Tux? Remember the penguin? What was Tux named after? Blue, green, blue. We got a couple of greens, got a couple of blues. A lot, of, a lot of blues and greens. Who's got a tiebreaker for blue and green? One yellow? So it's probably blue or green. Which one is it, guys? Give us a tiebreaker. Who wants to put a tiebreaker in there? Say blue or green. Paul's got, Paul's typing. Nobody's got this? Blue? Okay, so guess what? You're all wrong. Tux is short for Torvalds Unix. It was named after Linus Torvalds. Get it? Tux, Torvalds, Unix. Yeah, nobody makes that connection today. Yes, I know, right? We all think it's some like Bronx Zoo penguin or something, right? No, it stands for Torvalds, Unix. That's all it is. Uh, <laughs> all right, the FOSS software that led to the dramatic rise of Linux adoption in the 1990s. What actually drove Linux adoption, guys? Everyone's got this one. Yes. This was an easy one, apparently. Blue, Apache. In fact, most people don't think the internet would have taken off if it wasn't for Apache, the free and open source Apache web server on the free and open source Linux and BSD operating systems. Okay. Because if you had to run a web server in your mom's basement, there's no way you're going to afford a Windows NT license. Okay. As well as some proprietary web server, right? So the fact that the internet kind of exploded in the 1990s is really thanks to open source, more specifically Apache on, um, you know, Linux and FreeBSD Unix, which a lot of ISPs used back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And IS did suck back then. All right. Something offered Linus a job in 2000 on the condition that he stopped development on Linux. Who offered Linus Torvalds a job in the year 2000, provided he stopped all development on Linux. Who was it? Blue, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. We got green, Larry Ellison from Oracle. He's evil. I guess he could do that. Oh, everyone's all in. Michael Dell. Well, you guys got them all. Okay, only one of these is right. And the actual answer is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs offered Linus Torvalds a job, but he said, you got to give up Linux. 
And it kind of makes sense. Tim was right. Look at that. It kind of makes sense, though, because what was Steve Jobs trying to push shortly after 2000? OS X. <laughs> so, you know, like it's like he wanted that to kind of do there. But kind of Linux is kind of stealing is stealing uh, Mac OS's thunder for sure. Yeah. All right. So uh, first issue of Linux Journal magazine. Ooh, when was Linux Journal published? Raul says red. Yes, it was red. 1994. Yes, 1994. And first... The first book was written about Linux in what year? Okay, so it's the same answers. This one is definitely yellow, yes. The first Linux book was actually written in 1993, um, and it was basically an installation guide. Um, but it was an installation guide plus usage all kind of wrapped in there. Um, and you can Google it. Um, it's You can read it freely online. didn't have a cool cover or anything. It was just a fairly plain book. But... Remember, 1993 wasn't too long after Linux was kind of being circled around in academic circles, right? I mean, like, this was like before the major distributions. So, kind of cool. The, the distro Linus Torvalds installs on all his home computers. Guys, who remembers this one? Blue. It is green. Debian. Blue. We got a lot of blues there. I know a lot of people here are Debian fans. Um I am not a Debian fan, guys. I'm, I am definitely in the Red Hat Fedora camp. Um, and luckily, so is Linus Torvalds. So, you know, I'm not going to brag about it too much. But Fedora is an awesome Linux distribution. And Asahi Linux is moving to Fedora from Arch Linux Arm. So that's a, a new announcement you're going to hear next week. Yeah, so I'm an Asahi Linux user, and I will soon be switching from Arch to Fedora. <laughs> so, yes, it's Fedora and all those machines. Uh, and he's always used Fedora since uh, Fedora came out, right? So he likes uh, Fedora the best. And he's had a part to play in Asahi because of that decision. Here we go. All right. That is the last question that I have in this trivia, guys. This was, I thought this was a cool, fun exercise. And, you know, I don't know if you guys like this kind of stuff. But, <laughs> yeah, Rawls thought it was fun laughing. Yeah, there's a lot of humor in there. You can have, like, more and more and more. There we go. Fun education. Yeah, I can put some more together if you guys really want to. You know, I've got no shortage of trivia, but I thought I thought 38 questions or 40 questions would be like enough to just have some fun if we needed some filler. Yeah, there we go. Got a bunch of raised hands there. So perfect. That was great. Okay, cool. Question, Jason. Yeah. Um, there was an, an episode with Linus when he was bitching pretty fiercely at some maintainers because somebody had to use sudo to manage printers on their distro maybe one of his kids or something it caused him some personal grief was that fedora <laughs> you remember uh, that was it fedora i don't i never saw that episode to be honest so i i don't know if it was or not okay i thought it was slackware but he was very upset because he got called in to do family tech support because somebody wanted to Blah blah something something with a print install a new printer or something for school, and <laughs> they needed pseudo and they didn't have the privileges and he was very upset. Wow, yeah, I can I can imagine him being upset for that. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I can imagine. That's incredible. Um, yeah. Anyone else got any some other uh, cool Linux trivia or Linux tidbits they'd like to share? 
By the way, the first, uh, just, just so you know, the first book on Linux that the actual title, if you guys want, was from InfoMagic and it was called Installation and Getting Started Guide from, uh, Matt Welsh. If you want to Google it, 1993. And Bob says, what was the non-Linux supercomputer running before, on um, before Linux? So they had, um, they had some BSD based supercomputers, but they were not as widely used as Ironically, Microsoft Windows. So Windows Server 2008, actually, Microsoft had a pushback there in 2008 to maybe mainly with HP um, for building supercomputers based around Windows Server 2008. Um, it never really got very far because that whole space is the open source space. So, I mean, like things like MPICH and, um, you know, for message passing was very, very mature and you, you, they really had no chance of competing. Right. But they did have a Windows Server 2008 um, uh, high performance computing edition. Yeah. <laughs> what distribution does RMS use? I don't know. Uh, what does uh, Richard Stallman use as a distribution? Is it um, that security focused one that starts with a P? I can't remember the name of it. Like they, he's, they got the Trisco. Yes, Trisco. Uh, not P. Oh, well. I shouldn't have guessed the letter. Yeah, Trisco Linux. That's the one I'm thinking of because I remember uh, him bragging about that. Um, and I know the Free Software Foundation lists ones that are like very, very pure. Like they don't install any third party anything, right? Trisco. But I don't know. We, I mean, maybe, maybe switch to Fedora. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe secretly uses Mac OS. You know, is leading the dual life. But yeah, there's some there's some pretty cool ones. Um, let's see on the ones that I've done. Uh, yeah, in fact, if you Google uh, the actual date is uh, for that one question I had about it was the first um, operating system to support what? Well, it was technically you know AMD sixty four, but it was announced in a October fifth article in nineteen ninety five. Um, when uh, AMD introduced the x86-64 on October 5th, Linux got on it right away. So between October 1999 and 2001, they had totally perfected 64-bit support. Yeah, and that's before, that's just as it was entering the market, right? Yeah, Ron can't find the printer issue stuff. I don't remember it either, but that's okay. If you can find it, you can always uh, email the, you know, the, the uh, group list, right? Probably mid two thousands. I try to I try to see some of the more humorous ones. I wait for it to be filtered through Hacker News first. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. I think that's uh, all I got, guys. But um... okay. Well, thank you, Jason, for that whirlwind game show. Cool. There we go. There's no prizes, by the way, guys. Just like open source. $1.5 million? No $1.5 million for us, no. Chat GPT clone. I mean, we'll see. Okay, the prizes are the, the trivia we learned along the way. There we go. So if you guys want, for next time we need like a filler topic last minute, because I'm okay last minute, I could put another 38 or 40 questions together in case we, we have a, you know, a need for it. If you guys want to do that, so I'll make it interesting. Oh, that's a cool article. There we go. Susa, too intrusive. Can I? Would, you know what, Bob? I actually thought of building something like that. 
uh, for this particular presentation back when it was floating around as an idea before, um, you know, Christmas. And I wanted to do it as a shell script and <laughs> never got around to doing it. Um, and the reason I wanted to do it is I wanted to be all on the terminal, like a, a terminal version of Kahoot. But the problem is, is to get everyone's input, you have to go through some web portal. And I was um, about halfway done experimenting with that and got distracted by three more things. But I, I want to build a command line version of Kahoot that would be perfect for like a lug that we could do this with. And then you could just answer in like a web portal, you know, one of those four colors, and then we can actually see what everyone voted and tally up results. So the fast, faster you hit the answer, the better, you know, the more points you get. It would be so easy to do. I'm sure, I'm not sure why people haven't done an open source version of it because it's used everywhere. And I think it's just people are monetizing or trying to, right? So don't want to they don't want an open source version of there but there is a german project on github that does it they just wait it's way too complex you have to host it yourself and not well documented um real pain in the butt too many dependencies yeah so actually oh yeah. uh jason I, I have a trivia question i think some of the guys might like what was the reason that Linus Torvald finally gave up on Minix and devoted himself full time to Linux? Oh, I don't know. What was uh, it? Yeah, I read it from his his his, uh, his own book. It says, "Back then, I was booting into Linux, but used Minix as the main development environment. Most of what I was doing under Linux was reading email and news from the university's computer via the terminal emulator I had written." University computer was constantly busy, so I had written a program that auto-dialed into it. But in December, I mistakenly auto-dialed my hard disk instead of my modem. I was trying to auto-dial slash dev slash tty1, etc., but by mistake, I auto-dialed slash dev slash hda1, which is the hard disk device. The end result was I had inadvertently overwrote some of the most critical parts of the partition where I had Minix. Yes, that meant I couldn't boot Minix anymore. That was the point where I had a decision to make. I could reinstall Minix, or I could bite the bullet and acknowledge that Linux was good enough that I didn't need Minix. Oh, that's and pretty cool. So he wiped out his, his Minix. He wiped out his Minix partition accidentally, so he got stuck with Linux. Yeah. Yeah. So I always thought that was a, the, they call it the happy accident of Linux, so. Yeah, nowadays we don't do that. We just blame it on an intern and move on, right? So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there we go. Solar winds, one, two, three. I was going to say, I, I like the ridiculousness of the computer world that I, I deleted my thing because I phoned my hard drive. That's not, a, that's not an accident that could happen in many other industries. Yeah, it's like that, it's like that old poem, right? You know, roses are red, violets are blue. My system, or sorry, uh, or um, I can't remember what was that Linux poem that, that floated around the internet a few years ago. Oh, I can't remember. Linux happy accident is that okay? You know, Jeff has got the link on there for for that uh, Linux happy accident. Oh yeah, Ro <laughs> yeah. Roses are red, poems are bad. My system won't boot because I wrote I overwrote etcfs tab. There you go. <laughs> That's what floated around a few years ago. There you go. Grown. I know it's terrible, but I mean, there's a lot more worse dad jokes related to computing. Like, I mean, you guys, you guys know what, what computer sings the best. Does anyone know what computer sings the best? Adele. Nobody gets that. Come on. 
I think we'll just forget that one for now. Well, that's like that's a classic. Come on, here you go. Adele, you know. Yeah. Well, teachers can get away with a lot of stuff. Like I, I drop a ton of dad jokes in class, and my students can't do anything. They're stuck in there. But eventually, they crack, and after the first psychotic break, they start coming out with the best dad jokes ever, and then they're ready. They're ready for the industry. They can work in any tech, right? I mean, there's one time, like, I, I convinced my students that the proper pronunciation of DNS was Dennis. So we had, like, a student go on an internship, and the internship host was like, can't get to the, the, web, the web host now that we've rebooted the load balancer array. I mean, can you look into it? And the intern was like, well, it's probably Dennis. And the internship host was, what? Yeah, it's probably Dennis. And he was like, yeah, okay, that's, you're probably right. I'll go talk to him. <laughs> so, yeah, I had lots of fun with this. <laughs> yeah dns dennis so we have lots of fun there's a lot of twisted humor in, in teaching right otherwise you can't do it for very long all right so anyone else got some last minute stuff i guess we got 15 minutes or whatnot but or we can cut early you know yeah i vote that we cut early sounds good awesome it was it was a great first presentation that uh we saw i was i love that i got to install that now just the just the the use for building Docker containers alone. I'm totally going to be using that. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad everyone enjoyed the little trivia we did to fill it out. So that's awesome. I'll build another 38, 40 questions. Keep them just on hand in case we need it again. Thank you for listening to the Kitchener Waterloo Linux User Group audio podcast. Our monthly meetings are free of charge and open to all. So please join us if you are around. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month from 7 to 9 p.m. in Kitchener. Please visit kwlug.org for upcoming topics, for directions, and for additional meeting information. In addition to attending a meeting, you can participate in the KWLUG community by joining our email discussion list, by offering to present a topic, or just by spreading the word about this podcast. Thanks also to IndieServe Networks, Archive.org, and CCJ Clearline for hosting our website and multimedia files, to the Working Center for offering meeting space, and to the many people who participate in the KWLUG community. Until next time, goodbye world.